I'm Jovita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. It's a fierce debate. I'm talking about the controversy about whether sports and politics mix. You have the purists, those who believe that sports has nothing to do with politics and that athletes operate in a vacuum. And I don't mind telling you that I support the other side of the debate. I feel that sports is a microcosm for society. Factors dominant in society, such as discrimination, bias and exclusion, also crop up in sports. Though when athletes break barriers, it reverberates beyond the arena or playing field. Nowhere is this more true than the role of parasports in social inclusion for people with disabilities. Today, we discuss disability, sports and politics. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. If you haven't already had a chance to do so, please don't forget to like or subscribe to this channel. If you subscribe, it's a great way to be notified about future videos. We upload a new video every Saturday, and this is a great way to know when we post new content to this channel. So I hope you will take a, cha- a, a moment to subscribe if you haven't already done that, and also tell your friends and family about it. Over the last... A week or so, we've been talking about the inductees to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame. Last week, you heard from Chantal Benoit, and this week, you'll be hearing from Michelle Stilwell. I hope you'll tune in for the week after that when we talk to the recipient of the King Clancy Award, who is Natalie Wilkie. Michelle Stilwell is a remarkable individual who has succeeded in multiple domains a six-time gold medalist in wheelchair basketball and athletics, she is the only female athlete to win gold in two separate summer sporting events. Michelle has numerous accolades and medals to her name in wheelchair racing as well. In addition to her athletic accomplishments, Michelle has excelled in politics as well as in business. She has served two terms as a member of the Legislative Assembly in British Columbia and was the Minister for Social Development and Social Innovation from 2015 to 2017. Michelle Stilwell, hello and welcome to The Pulse. I'm really happy you could join us today. Hi, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You have, as I, as I outlined there, so many medals, so many accomplishments to your name. What does it mean to you to be inducted to the Canada Disability Hall of Fame? Oh, wow. I mean, obviously, it's a huge honor to be in a group with such esteemed colleagues and friends that have been already named and who are joining me this year. But, you know, I really don't see it as a personal achievement, I guess. But I do see it as a platform to advocate and perhaps inspire other people with disabilities along the way. It really gives an opportunity to put that spotlight on um, what people's abilities are and what their potential is and and where the disability community can um, go and, you know, recognizing that disability isn't a barrier to success. Um, when I talked to uh, Chantal Benoit about her start, in wheelchair basketball she said to me it wasn't as big as it is now and you know there wasn't even a local team 
That was Chantal's experience. But when you got your start with wheelchair basketball, what were things like? Well, when I got my start, Chantal was there. She was one of my teammates <laughs> and she was one of the leaders who, you know, taught me so many things in the game of, of wheelchair basketball. But I was very fortunate when I was injured. I was in the rehabilitation hospital in Winnipeg and I was in the occupational therapy department when somebody came up to me and asked if I had ever thought about playing wheelchair basketball. And quite honestly, I hadn't. I had been a um, you know, a, a gym rat and uh, involved in many sports in my pre-injury life. And so I was certainly intrigued by the idea of sport again, post-injury. And so I advocated to my doctor to give me a day pass so that I could go check out a wheelchair basketball um, practice and see what it was all about. And I think my passion for sport was ignited that first day that I went into the gym and I saw so many people with varying abilities, you know, pushing up and down the court, weaving in and out and, you know, just that power of uh, athleticism and, um, you know, not recognizing what their physical limitations may or may not be. And, you know, acknowledging that also in Canada, we are so blessed to play wheelchair basketball as an integrated sport. So what I saw on the court were people with disabilities playing alongside with able-bodied individuals and it was such a unique um, moment and I, I was just instantly intrigued and my competitive nature came out pretty quick. <laughs> uh, one of the things that a number of athletes tell me especially when they discover parasport after an injury is the role that the sport or being able to play a sport uh, has in terms of their recovery and feeling good about themselves and, you know, feeling positive about other aspects of their life as well. Was that the same for you also? For sure. And I mean, if you recognize that's where the Paralympics began, it was post-World War II where, um, you know, uh, veterans were seen to be able to use sport as an avenue to increase their strength and their ability so that they could do those activities of daily living easier. So I certainly saw that um, in my rehabilitation that I could get stronger and that that would help me in my day-to-day -day life. And did you ever think that there will come a day, I mean, the not-so-distant future from that day when you first saw the game being played on the court, did you ever think there'd be a day when you would represent the country internationally, that you'd win gold medals, that you'd be famous? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, that first day in the gym, the, the, the coach gave me a basketball and sent me off to a corner. I couldn't even get the ball three feet above my head. Um, but, you know, I am super, super competitive. And somebody tells me I can't do something. I'm going to show them how I can. And I'm going to find a way. And I'm going to adapt. And, and I certainly did those things. Um, you know, being a quadriplegic and playing wheelchair basketball wasn't typical. It still isn't typical. Most quadriplegics would play a sport like rugby. Um, so I played rugby too. I've, I've tried it all. I've water skied and played racquetball and tennis and, you know, athletics, of course. But um, basketball was certainly a, a passion of mine. And it's that ability to, um, you know, have teammates who are working towards the same common goal. You know, Chantel and I had... A very unique experience. I, I came into the team when um, they were on a winning streak. You know, they hadn't lost a game in a long, long time. Um, so I feel very fortunate to have been able to 
uh, play with 11 other incredible women who just happen to have a disability of some sort and represent our country. Do you think it, uh, that your, your winning streak and the success that you had with wheelchair and basketball helped to make inroads not just for people with disabilities, but also elevated uh, the idea that women could play sport and play it well? Yeah, I think, you know, anytime that we get an opportunity to be out there and show what we're um, capable of um, opens up conversations, opens up people's minds and uh, breaks down those stereotypes that, you know, we all too often see um, having an impact in our communities, right? So it's that that chance to showcase the talents of these individuals with disabilities. It, it certainly breaks down barriers and, you know, changes perceptions and maybe even encourages more, uh, a more inclusive society, I guess, and, and maybe um, values diversity a bit more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because yeah. people... People admire their athletes and they look to athletes as change makers. Uh, you have the distinction of not just playing wheelchair basketball, but you have a number of medals uh, to your name in in wheelchair racing as well. How did that come about? I retired from wheelchair basketball when after the 2000 games, my husband and I moved to Vancouver Island. And here on the island, there was not really... Um, the ability for me to compete at that level. So I was a new mom and I was just going to focus on motherhood. And, you know, I had accomplished my goals as far as basketball went. And uh, I took up coaching when I was here on the island. And so I was coaching just a local little recreational team, you know, speaking of getting people active and, you know, helping them get stronger and helping them in their daily lives. So I was spending my time in the evenings doing that. And I went over to Vancouver for a coaching clinic. And that's where I met Peter Lawless, who became my coach. And he was the one who said, uh, what are you doing playing basketball? You've got really, really fast hands. You should be in track you'd be really good at track and I said no no thanks I'm good <laughs> and I wasn't really all that interested but he did pursue and persist and call me and invite me and finally I went to a track meet in Duncan and got in a race chair for the first time and um, it didn't go so well I got beat by a nine-year-old boy <laughs> and that competitive nature in me said mm, that's not gonna happen again <laughs> Yeah, that kicked in again, eh? So, yeah. how, so how much how much training was involved in in learning to be a wheelchair racer? You know, I would imagine it's like a whole other sport. So there must have been a whole other set of skills you had to learn. Certainly, it's a whole new set of skills. But I already had the background from my time as a Paralympic wheelchair basketball player. I knew about perseverance, and I knew about dedication, and I knew how to, um, you know put my plan together, execute the plan, and the result would come. So, you know, Peter would tell you that I was a really easy athlete to coach um, because I already came with those skills, but I did have to learn how to get in and out of the chair, how to steer the chair, how to punch the wheels in wheelchair racing. You're not actually pushing your wheels, you're punching them. Um, so, you know, it's a whole different set of equipment and, uh, you know, that comes with its challenges, too, because all the equipment that wheelchair athletes use for every sport, there's different equipment and it's not cheap. Um, right. So those are the barriers that most um, 
come encounter with. You know, I, I would like to try a lot of different sports, but you can't have, um, well, I personally can't have um, all the equipment needed to do each and every sport. Yeah, you and most people. Is there a, yeah. is there a conversation to be had uh, about trying to eliminate some of those barriers? I mean, it would be sad to think that someone who aspired to play para-sport couldn't do so for financial reasons. Well, and I think we, we have lots of grant programs now and they continue to evolve and we have great organizations, whether it's the Canadian Paralympic Committee or our local um, provincial sport organizations. Um, there's places like here in BC, Kootenai Adaptive, that has all sorts of mountain bikes and electric bikes that you can rent and go on um, adventures with them. So, I mean, it's, it's getting... Better. There's lots of organizations, but you have to know about them and you have to know how to find them and get connected to them so that you can be supported by them. You had such a long career as a, first as a wheelchair basketball player and then in wheelchair racing. Do you think back to a single moment? I, I Look, I ask everybody, but do you think back to a single moment which jumps out at you as a bit of a highlight for you? Oh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it, people always ask me, you know, what was your favorite games, right? I, I was very fortunate to go to four different games. And I, I actually can't pick one because the first one, I got to stand on the podium with 11 other amazing women. And then in my second games was um, Beijing. And I got to stand on the podium and hear Old Canada play for me because of the accomplishment I did and for the work that I put in as an individual athlete. So that was pretty incredible. Then we went to London and London was just um, kind of epic, to be honest, right? The crowds were incredible. The media had really um, embraced the Paralympic movement and suddenly we weren't so much the afterthought, we were the equal thought to the Olympics and we were getting just as much recognition and, and the sponsorships were there and we were getting support and um, people were interested in learning about the different sports in itself. And so we had fans and it was, yeah. And then of course, um, Rio was my last games and I knew going in that they were going to be my last games. So they all hold something a little bit special. So your answer is all of the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not very good at picking favorites. Oh, for no, sure. That's that's, you know, it, it would have been around the time of the London games that you dipped your toe into politics. When, uh, why did you decide that you wanted to get involved with, with politics because you had a pretty full calendar as it is, I would imagine. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I wouldn't say I really decided to, you know, put my toe. I mean, eventually I did decide, but I was, I was recruited. I was, um, you know, invited. I was um, certainly encouraged, you know, from my uh, role in the community for my advocacy within um supporting people with or advocating for people with disabilities and especially those with special needs. Um, you know, that, that all came from my own lived experience. Right. And, you know, when you have a life changing injury, like a spinal cord injury, like I had, um, suddenly things are awakened and you start to see things that aren't right or things that don't work for you. And you think that's not okay. So you start using your voice and start advocating for change. And so I was that individual who was never afraid to get involved or to speak my mind and point things out to people when I thought they needed to change. Um, 
so yeah, I was encouraged to run. It took a, a fair bit of convincing for me to um, say, okay, I will put my name on a ballot. Um, and quite honestly, the first time I put my name on the ballot back in 2013, I, I didn't think I was going to win because I thought, who's going to elect me? Why would they elect me? You know, and, and I got the question, your opening statement was talking about politics and sport. And I got the question from a reporter who said, um, what do you know about politics? And I very quickly responded with, I have spent 20 years of my life in elite sport. I know politics. Mm. Like, <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs> well, this is what I wanted to ask you about, because you had by then spent about 20 years uh, not just playing sports, but playing sports, uh, you know, at a very high level, representing your country internationally. You'd had three, you know, three Paralympic Games by then. With all of that experience, how did it smooth the way for you as you entered the realm of politics? Mm -hmm. um, well, I think there was certainly... Um... I had some respect within the, com the community and, um, you know, I think people listened when I spoke, um, they, they understood I brought a different kind of perspective. And I think that's, what's so important about representation and, you know, making sure that we do have people with disabilities running for office because, you know, it's important that the disability community has that voice and that, um, their voice is heard and it's represented in all levels of government and all levels of policy. And, and so I think really, for me, it was being that voice and knowing that I could have that policy influence um, to support the decisions that have impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. You had seven years in the BC, as a member of the BC legislature. Uh, lots of votes and lots of decisions. Are there a few things that you're extremely proud of in your time at the legislature? Yeah, um, you know, it's kind of great locally within my community to know, you know, when I'm I'm wheeling around town now and I see things that I know it was my voice that made that happen or brought that to our community. I would say as a minister, my biggest um I guess my, my pride was the single parent employment initiative. And that's where we took people on income assistance and gave them supports for skills training for in-demand jobs. And we sort of, um, we, we gave them transportation supports and daycare supports and uh, the skills and the training if they needed to go to school for, you know, a year to get a certificate to get them into the employment uh, realm of jobs that were available and jobs that were in need and you know because so many people on income assistance um, they don't get off the the hamster wheel because they um, they can't afford transportation they can't afford the schooling they can't afford um, the, the the daycare like who takes care of the kids while I'm at school so there were so many roadblocks for them so we took away some of those roadblocks and when we started the program I thought okay we're gonna get like maybe 50 to 100 people who take us up on this offer and within the first year we had like 4,000 individuals taking part in the program and it just continued to grow and succeed and you know we we broke the the cycle that's really powerful. So many lives changed yeah. because 
of your efforts. Is there something you wish you had done differently in your time in office? Yeah, always, right? There's always, um, you know, 2020 hindsight, you know, I think if I could go back, knowing what I learned over those seven, eight years, and start off with that knowledge and understanding of how government works and how you move things forward and who you need to connect with and how you make it happen, I would have been far more productive. But honestly, when you don't have that experience, you're, you're learning, um, it, takes a while to get the things that you want to see done across the line. So, I mean, I'm, uh, it's that conversation that we, we often hear, you know, should there be term limits? And I firmly believe that individuals need three terms because the first year you're just trying to figure out where the washroom is. And then the second year you finally got a plan and you know what you want to get done and you want to see it happen. And um, by the end of that term, you're, just getting to the point where it's ready for implementation. So you need one more term to uh, implement what it is you're trying to do. So three terms is kind of good. Yeah. And I mean, you had just about two. Do you think you'll ever run for office again? I don't say never, but uh, certainly not looking (laughs) at it at this time in my life. Um, You know, there's lots of other things that I'm involved in now. And they are still in some ways, shapes and forms political, um, you know, s- serving on various boards and uh, sitting on various committees and advocating uh, in other ways. It's just uh, doesn't come with a paycheck the same way. Yeah. Do you, you know, there's so much has changed in Canada in terms of disability representation. Uh, we think about the Accessible Canada Act and how much of a, a turning point that has been. When you look back on the evolution of disability rights and inclusion in this country, how do you feel? Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel that there's more that needs to be done? Absolutely more that needs to be done. You know, I, 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 think, um, I think we can have hope with the progress that we've made. I, I think, you know, there's, there's obviously increased accessibility. There's increased awareness. We're having conversations, but there's so much more room for improvement and especially my my um what do i say how do i say it i guess the be in my bonnet these days is uh employment opportunities for people with disabilities and especially neurodiverse individuals and and that stems from um having a son who lives on the autism spectrum so you know it's constantly breaking down those attitudinal attitudinal barriers and um you know, making or hoping to encourage business owners. Um, and even in the public sector, we need to do far better job of um, employing people with disabilities and, and um, you know, giving them that opportunity that will create positive change. You know, I was uh, researching this interview and I was looking at some of the dates and I was thinking, no, wait a minute, I must be making a mistake. Because there were a couple of years when you were a member of the legislature uh, in BC and you were minister for, de- for social development while also uh, being an athlete. <laughs> yep. Did you, this is a serious question. Did you ever get to eat or sleep? <laughs> uh, well, it turns out I don't sleep a lot. I still don't sleep a lot. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty effective multitasker. Some people don't believe in multitasking, but... Um, I don't sit still and I've always got things on the go. So I like to be busy and the more that I'm doing and the more that I can have in my 
to-do list, the happier I am. If I don't have a big, long, active to-do list, um, I, I just I don't know what to do with myself, to be honest. So, do you still play basketball? Because that was your first love, and do you? St- I know you don't you don't compete internationally anymore, but do you still have a chance to play recreationally? Yeah. So actually, um, my husband and I are coaching Special Olympics basketball here in our community. Oh, yeah. So I do get to play every week with my Special Olympics athletes, which is lots and lots of fun. Um, so I still get to shoot around a little bit. I still have a basketball hoop outside <laughs> my house and my son and I will play and um, yeah. Do you think, um, you know, you, you, you're you also a parent and you, you've talked a little bit about your son. If you had to think about the next 30 years, where do you hope will be in terms of disability inclusion? What's your dream as a parent? Well, my dream for, for my son is his independence and his ability to be integrated into community where he has friends and he has network and he, you know, um, feels like he's contributing, uh, you know, but it, uh, we're not there. And, um, you know, we, we have to have people who are open-minded, who are willing to understand how to job carve right? Um, I think that's the biggest dilemma that we have today, especially we have such a labor shortage everywhere. People are looking for um, employees, but if the employee maybe doesn't fit all the skills, they don't get hired. And it's um, short-sighted because, you know, that individual might be able to do 80% of the tasks for that job. And maybe you need to look at another employee to pick up the 20%. And maybe there's that 20% from that employee that you can shift over to the employee with a disability. There's, but it's thinking outside the box. And yeah, I just, I hope that we can continue to make inroads for that. If you had to if you had to give someone some advice, if you could go back and, you know, think of someone being in the position that you were right after your injuries, facing the prospect of your life completely changed, what advice would you give them? Don't ever be afraid to speak up. I think so many times we're shy. We don't want to be bothered to somebody. We don't want to sound like we're complaining. Um, and it's not that we're complaining. We're just pointing out inadequacies or inefficiencies or uh Sometimes simple things that can make life better for people and not just me. I mean, you think of um, accessibility, accessibility when we when it comes to building ramps and having accessible entrances everywhere. That's not just for somebody who uses a wheelchair. It's for the delivery guy. It's for the mom with a stroller. It's for the senior with a walker, right? Like accessibility helps everybody and makes life better for everyone. Absolutely. The old curb cut phenomena. Michelle Stillwell, thank you so much for joining me today. It was uh, such a pleasure speaking to you. And I'm looking at the clock and the time has just flown right by. It was my pleasure. Thanks again for inviting me. Michelle Stillwell is one of three inductees to the Disability Hall of Fame. I hope you'll tune in for next week's episode when we'll be talking to Natalie Wilkie, who is the recipient of the King Clancy Award and a podium check at the 30th Canada Disability Hall of Fame luncheon. Well, folks, we have about a run out of time here on the program. And again, if you have any feedback on my conversation with Chantal Benoit from last week, or you wanted to chime in with your reflections on my conversation with Michelle Stilwell, please feel free to leave a comment down below if you're listening on YouTube or if you're uh, listening to the podcast. Otherwise, feel free to send us an email, write to feedback at ami.ca. You can give us a call at 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. 
Don't forget to leave permission to play the audio on the program. You can also find us on Twitter, or now I guess it's called X at AMI Audio, and use the hashtag PulseAMI. If you'd like to look me up on Twitter, or X, <laughs> I'm at Juwitha Gupta, and I would be very happy to read your comments and listen to your voicemails, and of course, uh, respond to your tweets as well. There are many people who make The Pulse possible every week. Our videographer today has been Ted Cooper. Our video editor is Jordan Steves. Mark Aflalo is our technical producer. Ryan Delahanty is the coordinator for AMI-audio podcast. And Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. And I've been your host, Chuita Gupta. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>